Welcome to Keeping Track with me, Dave Hackett. Today I'm talking to probably the most sought after and busiest music producer in Cork and also one of the best engineers and drummers in the country. You might know him best as McFannery's producer and drummer for the last 16 or 17 years, but also in that time he has built his own recording studio in East Cork called Monique Studios. If you're a fan of independent Irish music, you will have heard his production skills on recordings by McFannery, Jack O'Rourke, The Hardground, Anna Mitchell, Susan O'Neill, Claire Sands, Jean Black and the Rats, David Hope, Hank Waddell, The Bonk, Dissolute Burma. The list really does go on, and I am leaving out a lot. Legend also has it, and I have this on first-hand information, folks, that he was the largest infant ever born in Skibbereen. <laughs> but more on that later. He's here to talk about what it is that he does, and we are going to listen to some tunes that he has picked out especially for us this morning. It could only be the one, the only, Mr. Christian Best. Hey, Dave. How's it going, man? Welcome to the show, Christian. Thanks for having me. Before we have a chat, do you want to want to ease us in with your first tune? Yeah. Yeah, let's go for a cold train number. Love Supreme. Thank you. 
That was the Love Supreme Part 1 Acknowledgement by John Coltrane, and that was picked by my guest this morning, Mr. Christian Best. Christian, let's get into it. Uh, for people listening who don't know you, 
Would I be right in saying music has been in your life from before you even remember? Yeah, I guess that's spot on. I suppose some of my earliest memories would be like um, going to con- like gigs, not really concerts, but gigs, you know, open air gigs in outside Skib. With my dad playing rock and roll, you know. Your dad was a drummer as well? No, he's not the Pete Best of the Beatles. He's Pete Best of West Cork, a guitar player, singer. Um, but yeah, he loved Beatles, Hendrix. I mean, I grew up thinking that the Beatles songs were my dad's songs because I knew them from him. And then when I got to like 13, 14, getting a rubber soul or whatever, I was like, hang on a second, this isn't dad's song. This is a Beatles song. <laughs> and then I kept on listening to more records. I was like, and this is a Beatles song, and this is a Beatles song. None of them were my dad's songs. You know, for, for everything, like... Um, I think we all feel like we own the Beatles songs. Yeah, right it's crazy. <laughs> like, your childhood. Yeah, and he knew loads of them. And I used to kind of go up to the attic, and that's where was kind of the play area. You know, if you had a drum kit, which I did later on, that's where it was. If you played snooker, a little pool table, it was up there. But mm. the old man had, like, a, a little reel-to-reel, like, so a 16-track Fostex and a little desk. So that was always there. Um and if you were coming up the stairs, you'd be like, Oi, <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> I'm recording, you know what I mean? So you get shouted at that for going up there and you're like, oops, he's doing something, i got to be quiet. So that's been there all the while, you know. And then later on, Adrian, my brother, he got into recording too. So he had like, you know, f- four track tape things. But yeah, you're, it's just always been there. And did he record bands in the in your attic? No, just his own stuff. His own you stuff. Know? So then there's still there's still like demos of that stuff around the place. I've got little reel to reels of recordings he did, um, uh, just his own stuff. Yeah. So you were around recording from day one, really? It was there. It you was know, there. it wasn't really hands on. Adrian would have been my older brother. It would have been more hands on because um, I think he, yeah, he got he got a little four track thing but he'd record me doing drums on his songs early on I got into recording like I suppose in early 2000 2002 something like that when I got my first you know recording thing so it was like 23 years ago I working like 60 hours on, on a building site in Berlin oh really? yeah like working black for 10 bucks an hour 60 hours a week night shifts and just saving up loads of dosh you know and I was like yeah I got like four or five grand together and I need two mics a speaker and I can't remember what it was a Roland eight track all in one type thing this is in Berlin yeah right. so I had like that was the first little studio I got and I was like eight tracks that'll get me a drum kit recording you know so that was late like you know I was, I was 21, 22 and I didn't really get into it prior to that but I had been drumming on people's music in studios you know on all levels home studios proper studios but I wasn't um, doing it till that age was, my brother was doing it younger and there was real I wish there was I wish I had known earlier about it but yeah my old man was like hands off Really? Everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like Adrian used to get it so much shit because he'd want to play a Les Paul or a Strat or a 353 and you're like, don't touch it. I mean, we, we kids break shit like so. Yeah. And they were good instruments, so I get it now. Yeah, but yeah. At the time it was like, what a stinge bag. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so what were you doing in Berlin? Um, Musically, like? Oh, God. It was like some punk, jazz, noise, avant-garde type stuff good city for that it was yeah it was everywhere I mean that's and at that time I was like super into Coltrane I mean it was Coltrane um, Mingus Davis was Davis um, 
mainly, and then the offshoots of those players that came from each band. You know, I followed their careers. But yeah, and I didn't know. Yeah, that was that that whole period is very influenced by that jazz stuff. Like that was all I listened to for about four years, and it happened funnily because there was this little record store in Skib. Um, I don't know some country dude from Cora got into like buying records from America when records were really unpopular, and he had like a little thrift store, CDs, and then suddenly he just there was these like cases and cases of vinyl that people in America were selling for like peanuts and I was down there going oh vinyl cool what's the deal there and I was you know at that time just like a sponge for all sorts of music 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 so I got like two 60 box cases for like 50 bucks each and I remember just like going through them going oh Miles Davis I've heard of him and there was like 10 records you know like live ones in a silent way bitches brew kind of blue uh, and then there was Coltrane ones and really avant-garde kind of bootlegs of Mingus live concerts which are just spectacular and I remember sitting outside Hackett's in Scotland yeah like one of the greatest pubs ever on a sunny day drinking like a, a Murphy's and just pulling out I'd say I'll bring three of these and I'll read the, in, the inside notes outside while having a drink in the sun you know on my own and I was like a young dude pulling open like this Love Supreme going hmm no idea what the f- what this was you know yeah. and I opened it up and some grown man came down and said excuse me do you know what you have there and I was like uh, <clears throat> I think it's just a John Coltrane record. <laughs> and he, he said, can I see it? And he said, that's a first edition Love Supreme record. And I was like, what does that mean? You know? Yeah. And, and then, I mean, once I listened to it, it was like, what the hell is this? This is like f- fluid, you know? Yeah. So you were, were you 20 then? <clears throat> yeah, I guess it was around 22, I guess. 20 when I listened to that. But I moved to Germany at, at, in t- 2001, I think from London I joined like a punk kind of a punk band how long were you playing drums at that point I think I think I was thought I started late but I think I started around 13 or 14 there was a drum kit in the attic and again you, you weren't allowed into it yeah, yeah. I wasn't into it like but we I would just take it out and he'd put that back that's Dave Pierce's get away from it he's an American <laughs> guy I used to visit like and he was a he used to play with my dad's band when he came over in the summers, but he left his kit in our place, and it was a, an amazing Rogers kit from the sixties, a Silver Sparkle. Um, but he got sick of telling me put it away, you know. So for the first year, I just played this Rogers without cymbals. There were just t- two toms, you know, f- rack floor kick and a Rogers snare drum, and I was like, just wanted to try it out over and over, you know. Um, and then eventually, I got cymbals. I think my mum helped me. Yeah, she was very encouraging on that side of things, you know, helping me fund things. If you do this, I'll give you money for that and you save up and blah blah blah. Um, so that's I think it was like fourteen. So I just played without cymbals for a year, kind of thing. Yeah, and then when you got that, those two boxes of jazz records, when did that start to influence your playing? Uh, instantly, I mean, instantly because like the, I didn't respect jazz till that till that point. Um, not that jazz, you know what I mean? Like, not jazz from pre-1980. I had, like, I had listened to jazz, like Dave Weckl with Chikoria, you know what I mean? That modern jazz from the 90s. But that was kind of, I listened to that when I first started drumming, but this jazz was a different, it's a different style of drumming, yeah. you know? It's not as clinical, it's more spiritual or expressive and free so 
I was I went down that route and I wanted to get really technical and try and get all those chops down and is that where rudiments would have come into it then? It would have, but I was never like I never got lessons, so I was such a late comer to rudiments. But I yeah. think just the energy of it, you know, the, the volume, playing loud, playing hard, playing quiet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a lot of drummers back then, when I remember listening to people, it was like it was kind of like one level, you know. And I was I was doing that when I was younger too, like it's on, the volume is on, and it just gets. It goes to loud and stays at loud, you yeah. know, which is like Rage Against the Machine is just fucking banging and it's yeah. got such a visceral energy. So I think when I got into that stuff, it kind of, um, it made me think about dynamics, you know, and that was really important working with singer-songwriters that I didn't know at the time, but I was able to sit in and play, you know, just turn a floor tom on its side and have a quiet kick drum and play with a mallet or cover yeah. up the snare and I could play a little harder, but it would never be too loud. So it became really helpful, and that's that's kind of a result of listening to drummers play at double bass level. Yeah, you know, because you can't do that busy stuff when you're bashing it. Yeah, it's just really. I mean, there probably are people that can, but it yeah. just doesn't sound right. So I always thought when I was younger, you go to see a band, you know, a rock band or whatever, and you know, I always felt like there was the drums and then there's the instruments. But then say when I go to see jazz drummers, mm. it, you instantly are like. The drums are an instrument there. One hundred percent. They're adding so much texture, tonal. Yeah, and ambient. they're playing, and they're they're not doing much. They're not sweating. Yeah. They don't have blisters on their yeah. fingers. They don't need bandages after a gig. They're using <laughs> they're, their ears. Yeah. First, <laughs> that was another thing. I guess from that whole period, and you're saying like the, they're an instrument. It made me play second, listen first. You know, prior to that, you're like, I got this thing. I'm gonna go, boom, ga, boom, boom, ba. And I did it. I just done that. Did you, you know what I mean? I mm. nailed that. And it was about playing the thing, and and you know, it's just not playing music. It's playing the drums with music around you. Exactly. Yeah. So I stayed in Bridgehouse B and B in Skibbereen during one of the easings of the restrictions in the summer of 2021. And it is without a doubt the most unique B and B in the country, I would say. And shortly after I arrived, myself and the proprietor were chatting, and it turns out that it is your family home, mm. and your mother Mona runs it. It was here, Mona, informed me after a few cups of tea of your record-breaking birth. <laughs> um, just from spending a few hours in her company and her home, you can tell she's a very strong, independent, creative woman. Uh, you named your studio after her, and I was wondering, is she a big influence on your creativity? Yeah, I th like maybe not musically, because she doesn't play... Ah, she, I think she played piano when she was younger, but like more in terms of her support. She's always been very supportive of um, you know, helping me by the next piece of gear oh you know she's like I could list a lot of things that she's helped me fund from my early age yeah. you know um, like I really needed to get a new I wanted to get a new drum kit you know okay cool I've, I've got money in the credit union you can Amazing. use that and pay it back you know what I mean yeah. like um, so that, that stuff is big when you need to get new things you know 15 17 years ago or something I was like I really want to get a Studer 2 inch there's one up the country I'm just like 500 quid short here, you yeah. know, like this is back in the day, mm. and then you know, sort her out afterwards. But she's like, cool, yeah, if you need that, get it. Like so, she's been cool like that all the way, and she's she's extremely creative herself, um, just by nature of who she is. It's it's not like a, she didn't study anything arty, she just is that way. We really like the picture on the wall in her house, and she just gave it to us, and she said, get it printed. 
she just handed us this in, in the frame, yeah. get it printed and bring it back. And it was like four months later because restrictions yeah, and all yeah, that. And yeah. yeah, she's she's <coughs> she has faith in in, yeah. in good people. She can suss. She, she people that come into the house like she knows straight away if they're musicians, she's gonna have a nice experience because they're so chill. She know and her like her husband was a musician. You know her. Two of her children are musicians. She loves being around musicians. Yeah. It's the crack, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, there's probably a bit of banter to go on. If there was, like, festivals and skib, people would stay in the house. There'd always be sessions, late-night sessions, you know? People would just be coming from the concert and they'd stick their head in even if they weren't staying. And he, can I pop in there for a, a hang? No yeah. hassle. Yeah, come on in there. Pass it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So. Um, do you want to play a tune from Mona? Yeah, good call. Um, Pearl Jam, huge band that I love, along with like all of the bands of that time. It's hard to pick one band, but I picked this band because of there's a song on it. When I came back from Germany, I was living in this little wooden place at the back of the house. And um, I just had a stereo going, you know, door open. And a stereo, and every time this album was on, mum would hear like the last song on the record, and she'd go, I love this song. Who is that? You know, played and then you know, at Christmas time, she's like, put on that Pearl Jam song that I love, and everyone else in the family used to burst their holes like, Mum <laughs> likes Pearl Jam. What the fuck? Like, <laughs> what song does she like? You know, and I was like, put this on, and then after like, the next year, you know, there'd be a christening, and she'd like, put on our song, you know, yeah. and then, same thing just kept on popping up Christmas times, you know. So she, I just just become our song in the end.
that was Around the Bend by Pearl Jam and that was picked by my guest today, Mr. Christian Best. So you started off as a drummer. When did you get into producing properly? Uh, good question. Um, I, I always had like a tearing the music apart kind of head. You know, yes. Yeah, so did you have a moment where you stopped just listening to music and you, you kind of started, yeah. p- started listening with producer ears? I think so. I think it was like drummers are that way inclined, as you know. You're very, you, you think on three or four levels, the kick, the snare, the cymbals, the fills. So there's like every you kind of have a part mentalized kind of way of thinking about playing, I think. Whereas maybe other the melodic players have a more of a linear type of thing. So I think it's easier for drummers to get in and take out the treble part of the eco music system and then the bass things and so yeah, I was always ripping Zep records apart, going, Oh, did you hear like that guitar just came in for and it was a register up or the reverb. I remember going to a gig with my dad and in the car going, What's that sound in the background? You know, why is it going you know, or the reverb is not it's it's later. Why is the re- why is the sound of that reverb thing happening afterwards? And then, you know, oh, he didn't know how to explain it, I guess, but it's just a pre-delay. So I was constantly taking things apart and going, you know, what is that? Why is this happening? And just just thinking about music deeper than just experiencing, ruining music for myself along the way. Like, But do you think that kind of happens maybe um, just kind of holistically from your brother getting into it and your dad already doing it? Do you yeah. think that like you just kind of had that, in, that relationship with music from day one, maybe? I think so. I, like, nothing that I do or have done has ever been like premeditated I just kind of fall forward or sideways yeah. into something and like like you know how did you get here how did we get here yeah. I don't know how I ended up being an owner of like fucking 12 fucking vintage amps I mean I don't even play guitar <laughs> <laughs> really I don't anymore you know what I mean so I don't know how I got those bloody things Yeah. and the same with drums you know or microphones. When I was 16, if someone said, oh, you're going to have an obsession with microphones, and you're older, I'd be like, nah, man, it's drums, 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 drums. So it just, yeah, it just happened. I don't really, I don't think about anything other than it just happens and one obsession to the next, you know. So on your social media, you describe yourself as a producer, engineer, mixer and drummer. And as the studio has become so busy and your gigging life is exclusively with Mick now, mm-hmm. would you identify more as a producer than a drummer now? Good question. I ask myself that a lot and I used to feel kind of the drummer in me used to feel betrayed, you know, yeah. get more busy. But um, I suppose some days, yeah, producer, some days engineer, the next day engineer slash tea maker and then drummer to someone that's not present at the studio, you know. So it's all of all of the above. Um, and, some, you know, I, I don't really see any one of them being kind of higher than the other. So what what do you think makes a good producer? Is it their is it your technical know-how or your innate musicianship? Is it an ability to reproduce an artist's sound or steer them in a new direction? Do you need people's skills, a good sense of humor, experience as a babysitter maybe, or are you that <laughs> or are you all that really as what could essentially be described as a facilitator? I think so. Yeah, a facilitator to whatever the needs of the person are like someone like for example Mick comes in now at this stage he's made like he's on his ninth record. He does, you don't need to talk about much with yeah. Mick, you know, you go in and it, you do it one way and there's very little talking. Some people, you know, I was working with a, a nice artist yesterday, a guy, local guy called James Keegan. He's just starting out, you know, it, 
you're finding ways and ways that he's reacting that he's happy about himself sounding this way mm. so i think in those instances you're trying to facilitate a sound for somebody that excites them and not get it wrong you know not getting it wrong is is more important than getting a cool sound that i vibe on i think you know getting a sound that they're vibing on when they're driving home in the car going fuck i never thought it sounded cool you know and not hoping that it doesn't come back the next week and go, oh, I didn't really want it to be this, I don't know, poppy or folky. But um, I think, uh, yeah, like the facilitator thing is is it really. And just being an easy hang um, and obviously having knowledge, like some producers, I mean, don't play any instruments. Yeah. And they're the most famous, you know, like Rick Rubin. Yeah. But he doesn't play nothing. So he's obviously got like some sort of ability to make things work for artists. If that's not playing an instrument, that's obviously very valid. Quincy Jones, like he plays everything, scores everything. He can do anything, all singing, all dancing. So I don't know. I think every producer falls somewhere in between the all dancing and the person that just helps, makes the calls. You know, for you should have this bass player, you should have this guitar player. Maybe just record on your own. Yeah. It's not really doing anything, but it's clearly a very good idea for someone to, to just maybe play a solo record with a piano and their voice. That decision could have gone very differently if someone said, no, I think you should sound like Weezer, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. which which is no bad thing. <laughs> um, um, yeah, know. so as a producer, do you feel a lot of responsibility, responsibility to be mindful of people's art or have you... Or do you have a high level of trust in your own tastes anyway? It's it's super important to understand where the person's coming from um, because I would be the first to admit that if those questions asked, like, what are your influences? Who do you like? Who do you, you don't? Who don't you like? What is it that you don't like? If, if you think if you don't ask those questions, anybody can get it wrong, mm. so wrong, you know, like... Um, and there's been times where... You know, under pressure, everyone's under pressure, time financially to, to get a certain body of work done that, you know, you can push things through. And I try to make sure that while keeping it, keeping everything kind of flowing forward, you're still not steering the ship in a direction that when they look back in six months or a year going, how did I end up sounding funky? You know, and to ask the question, you know, to a lot of, artists come in with you know buddies or session musicians that are their friends or helping them out and these usually dudes like you know funk music like Wolfpack or maybe heavy music as well like guitars and this is like a, a timid female artist and they've got these guys playing music that's either like heavy or super funky and then you ask the girl or whoever the artist is are you into funk music is that your bag you know and she's like no I don't listen to any funk music I'm like okay why are we why are we playing funk music on your track you know yeah. Uh, I don't know. So you're kind of a middleman to steer her ship, and then and have you had have you had instances like that where you've completely made an artist you do a U-turn on what they came in to the studio with? Uh, yeah. I, well, I wouldn't say like a U-turn, but like just to maybe put the, the like I kind of often describe it as like you know if you're leaving from one mass landmass and you're there's a destination over there and it that island you can barely see is like, that's my happy place for how I would like to see myself sound. And on that little island, you've got like all of the music that makes me feel good. You know, like there's some of these songs here or your favorite songs that you listen to. 
and just make sure that when we're leaving with the guitar player, the bass player, the drummer and the solo artist or the band, that we're not going the wrong direction. So constantly asking like, questions about, you know, do you like funk? No. Okay, cool. Let's steer it back. We're, we're heading off to Funk Island. We don't want to be going <laughs> over there, you know. And the next day you could be going to Funk Island, but like heading to the island that makes that person super happy about how they they think, I never thought I could sound like this. This is exactly the type of music I would listen to, and this excites me. So, yeah, halfway over, you know, bass player dude is throwing in like a slap line. Hey, <laughs> we're not going to Funk Island, but not yet. <laughs> Maybe next week on your session, but not on this session. So just yeah. being being you know, thoughtful of the, the stuff that they like. And, and often people aren't on the same page or as interested. And musicians that are hired are, are probably not that into the music a lot of the time as well. You know what I mean? They might not be into the type of island that she's going to, but they're helping her get there. So you've got to make sure that you softly encourage them to, you know, be cautious and mindful of where she needs to go. So you're just kind of like helping and whatever it takes to get there sometimes it's really awkward because you get guys that are like no man that's my that's my lick you know and you're like it's kind of a little a little off and you know and people get there some guys that maybe aren't experienced or girls can you can get their nose out of joint and you've got to be kind of try and bring them back in and make sure that the vibe is good because if the vibe sometimes can get a bit ugly and it's like no one wants to play music in that environment so you've got to kind of take care of the the spirit in the session as well to make sure that everyone's feeling happy and playing under chill vibes, you know. Yeah, okay, you did come in with an island of songs <laughs> <laughs> that are special to you. Do you want to play another one? Yeah, let's or go with the Nick Drake one. We'll keep the aquatic theme going. Betty came by on her way Said she had a word to say About things today And fallen leaves Said she hadn't heard the news Hadn't had the time to choose See the river man Gonna tell him all I can About the plan For lying time If he tells me all he knows About the way his river flows
Betty said she prayed today For the sky to blow away Or maybe stay She wasn't sure For when she thought of summer rain Calling for her mind again She lost the pain Gonna see the river man Gonna tell him all I can About the band Feeling free If he tells me all he knows About the way his river flows Don't suppose it's meant for me. was a man by Nick Drake and that was picked by my guest today Christian Best uh, Mick Flannery is a solo artist but regular listeners to Mick's albums and attendees of his live show will know you've been a regular fixture in every aspect of his output for close to 20 years would I be right in saying it's been a very mutualistic and beneficial partnership for you both yeah it has been like I feel very fortunate to have met Mick when I did um, and to have him trust me do anything you know with him musically Um and I feel, you know, it, it's a similar feeling his way. Mm. You know, we're, we're tight, good friends, and we've expressed such brotherhood after the too many pints. <laughs> so, yeah, it is. It's, it's, I hope, beneficial for has been beneficial for him, but it definitely has been for me. There's no doubt about, you know, when you work with someone and they have a bit of success, people check who did that record and they come to the studio as a result so yeah it's been it's been very um good for me to work with Mick like that you know how many number one albums did you <clears throat> do has he had two or three I don't know I know there was two and I think two more got to two which okay. is unfortunate but yeah. I mean I I don't think anyone's other than you know, labels or management or kind of pushing for that type of thing. But when it happens, it's super cool. It must have been a lovely feeling when yeah. you got the first one. Was that Red to Blue, I'd say, was it? It was, yeah. I remember it, it was a f it was a feeling of like, wow, we did something and it, it became successful, you know. That record, we we worked on that for a very long time. And it was just a lot of the time just me and Mick doing stuff on it and, you know, getting people in to do stuff and redoing songs three times because it wasn't right and over and over and the label asking for another one different song and you know, he was under a lot of pressure for some reason they were asking for a lot of songs and he had to redo songs or come up with one that's 
more poppy. Is that your only experience of working with an artist on a label? Um, no, there's been a few. They're becoming less, I guess. Yeah. You know, um, so have you seen, you know, there's a thing like years ago, but A&R men were very like, you need to turn up the hat or you need to turn it down or whatever. Did you get that experience with Mick? They Well, Mick would have been going to all of those kind of meetings on his own naturally because he was signed and we were, you know, sidemen. Um, but as a producer, then did you have? Did you feel? Did you? Did you have to do different mixes and? Not really the EMI ones, but when he went to Universal, there was a period, all right, where they wanted like to make sure there was you know normal procedure of having some singles, and it's within the realm of the artist like Mick, you know, while there's a single. Um, so they were clearly wanting stuff that had a bit of momentum for radio, just to keep you know like these little markers on a record that they will be able to have something to push um, which is I don't know kind of a silly idea a lot of the time but yeah they would have been looking for things like that not on the level of hi-hats but I suppose if there was something where her voice was too low they might jump in but they never did, they wouldn't have done that but they would have yeah I just wanted to get a picture yeah. of that like I, you know being signed or whatever yeah. um, to a label are they in the control room at any stage yeah, there was yeah. a mix A&R guy from, um, nice guy Dave, he was in, he came down for a day just to see what was going on. A lot of people get like, oh, when they don't know you, you're, you're recording in the drummer's place, you know, and they expect to go to a, a bedroom or a shed. Okay. <laughs> but like when he came down, you know, it's a full on studio. So I think there was a, a case of like, let's see where our money's being spent and let's see, you know, just being around the artist to make sure what songs are going down and get maybe a, a feel for the landscape of the record they're going to be promoting. So, yeah, the A&R guy came down at that time and other times, like, there was a label I like, worked with. Um, it was Virgin Germany. Um, I think they've disbanded now, but Mark O'Reilly was signed to them and, you know, we had a record made and it was supposed to come out in a month and they were like, we need another single. And it was like he, you know, went away on a Friday after we finished the the record or finished this mixing for a record and he was ready to go to mastering and they were like no we need one more song we're not doing this and he's like but the it's being released in like four or six weeks or something and they're like we need another song we're pushing the whole record back if you don't get another song you know just like someone came in with the idea that it was really important to have a a single single and that was more catchy and you know he came back Monday with a song he probably didn't like it as much because he was intentionally trying to write something that wasn't natural and we we banged it out you know on the Monday the whole thing and mixed it the next day and it was done so it and it became his radio single for that record and it I mean it's a lovely song you know okay yeah, yeah. And I remember being we were touring with Mick actually and Mikey the bass player was playing with Mark at the time um, st still does but if Mark's playing um, and we were just loading out of this place in I don't know somewhere in Amsterdam not Amsterdam, somewhere else anyway, in Netherlands. And we, we were all like, what, what the hell is that? And it was that song, you know? That one just got obviously on Spotify when they were closing the bar down. I was like, oh my God, I just took a little uh, screen or video and sent it to Mark. But it was that song, you know, so. So in a, would you say in a way they were right? I, yeah, I mean, labels do what they do. They yeah. know they need certain things and it's, it's good for the artist to have, you know, the mechanics of something that will... And if they're excited about the song and the decision it's like a, you know the game if they're excited about the song that they said you should do you know and you do it they get behind it you know that's what you want with a label you want them to get behind you and if it means you doing a song that they're behind and they're passionate about 
they're going to talk about it three more times than they will if you said, I don't have any more songs. You know, and they're like, okay, cool, whatever. They'll, they'll promote you, and I think it's important. They know what they're doing. Obviously, they're more interested in the figures. You know, that's interesting yeah I was wondering about that you know some people think that you know if you get a number one record that you're doing well but like in your experience a number one record in Ireland say I think it just puts more people on on the seats now you know that's it translates to live shows you yeah. Think? yeah unfortunately I think back in the day it might have meant something different but uh, yeah like even if back in the day even if you did get a number one you know the records were so expensive it you needed to sell so many records before you started to recoup anyway. So I don't think it translated into financial success for an island of Ireland. But like you meant that maybe the next record will have people listening to it because they liked the first one, they went to your shows. So I'd say it, it definitely, at a point, I think when that happens, yeah, you go from playing a certain size show, three, four hundred size seater show, and then, you know, you might find yourself playing one show of a bigger venue instead of two smaller shows as a venue. So it, it translates differently. And, yeah. You know, I, I do notice, I remember that happening with Mick, you know, we'd play three shows and then all of a sudden those three shows got gobbled up into the next bigger venue and you played one show to, you know, three times the audience, whatever, Olympia or Baker Street. So it's... it's so the, yeah, the success isn't scaled. really from record sales, it's from live live shows. Yeah, I think the, yeah. the, the it feeding back into the back of that success of, you know, having a number one spot or whatever, it probably, yeah, the, the artist just gets propped up a little bit more for longer. And then there's the pressure of keeping themselves propped up. Um, <laughs> I just have one more question about um, Mick, really. Um, you must have a very symbiotic relationship at this stage. And I often think of bands as, you know, kind of relationships of mm -hmm. sorts. Sometimes when a band calls it a day, it takes time before they might see each other. Yeah, or, you know, sure. you know, it can be, it can be like bumping into an ex in town or something yeah. someday. But um, does it take work to maintain a regular friendship at times, or is that, or is the work so sporadic that that's not an issue for you? No, well, like we spend a lot of time together when we're working and when we're on the road. Outside of that, I mean, I've I've got kids for eight years plus now, so I don't really go out that much. Yeah. And when Mick didn't, if he was down in Cork, Mick likes a, a pint, <laughs> <laughs> as I do. Don't get me wrong, but so he, you know, he'd be out more, and I, I'd be kind of like, oh man, I can't. I've, I'm just beating, putting the kids to bed or something boring like that. Um, so, but we like we spend a lot of time working and hanging on the road, and that's kind of where it lies, you know. And, and even when we were on tour a lot back, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, I think because we worked together and and that relationship can be intense. Being together on the road is intense. So we, I think, purposefully wouldn't share a room together to keep it not, because that, that's another level of, you know, when we were sharing rooms, it was another level of, like, you can get on people's tits if you're, if someone's not in on the upswing of the mood in the, the little group and someone's on the low, you know, everything, when you're on the low, everything is annoying, kind of, so. So we kind of did that to, to preserve, I think it was just a, not really spoken about, but I think it was a wise thing to do, that when we come back to work together, we're psyched about yeah, it's like exciting to hang out again. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because it, it being in a band can be very intense, you know. It can, but I must say, like everyone in you know mixed band over the years, um, it's very chill. There's never been an argument, you know, no arguments, no fights, no raised voices. It's just really super chill. And I'm sure like people kind of like wreck each other's heads if someone's like getting a bit leery or drunk and they're trying to sleep you know what I mean and Roisin's and there's a fucking party going on downstairs and 
people yeah. are trying to crash upstairs but no one's ever gone it's it swings usually it's so chill like and that's due to the main man being like he doesn't want anything to be uptight like if yeah. it's uptight you know it's not gonna it's not gonna work not gonna work so he kind of carries that you know and he's pretty chill cool now let's take a tune let's take okay. another tune um, let's go for the Tom Waits track that's a pretty um, reoccurring soundtrack in the back of the van over the years Going Out West by Tom Waits and that was picked by my guest today Christian Best um, Christian just one more uh, question around the McFlannery camp mm-hmm. um, I know his first album was done 
independently and after he got signed to I think was it EMI first? Yeah, EMI picked him up. Yeah, I think every album after that then like from White Lies On was recorded in the studio and his but you know, he got the full treatment. The first album I think the drums are is a drum machine. I think so. I think MIDI or drums. Yeah. So maybe there might have been one or two that were like performed by a real drummer, but I have a feeling it was mostly MIDI or something. Yeah, yeah. The, that's a, a lot of people still talk about that first album. And I was wondering, I think going back many, many years ago, when I, fir- when I first met you, you kind of, we did have a little chat that you were saying that maybe you might revisit that album, maybe redo it. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you'd still consider? It'd be great to do, yeah. We ha- I think it ha- we have talked about it. Um, it's just getting the time to do it, like even just making an album that is so maybe easily playable. Making any record is time consuming and, you know, people, it's it's not a cheap endeavour, even if it's one that's so familiar to the play, people playing it. But um, it would be something I'm sure that might get done at some stage because that's the album that is related to the Evening Train play. Yeah, the so, play that was on the Everyman in 2019. Yeah, I think. Uh-huh. I think it's getting some air on a, another stage in Canada. So maybe when, you know, if something like that gets more wind behind it, the theatre side of that album, it might make sense to kind of re-release it or... I don't know. I'm sure it's on. it's been on Mixed Mind. His management probably has plans for something like that too. But it'd be nice to, to revisit because it's so strong. Um, and... The songs kind of evolved, I suppose, from performing them live, and so I think it'd be exciting for Mick at some stage, and maybe people, fans of the record would be pretty psyched to hear it. Just new, not better or just different. It would be exciting, I think, because uh, clearly it holds its own as as it is, you know, too. For some people, let's move on. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, has your line of work and the fact that you're dealing with different people and their art week in, week out, has that changed you over the years in any way? Like, have you learned anything about yourself as a person from your line of work? Because it's such a gregarious role, really. Uh, I tend to be kind of oblivious. I wish I wasn't. I wish I was more, you know, able to look at myself from other people. I think everyone does, to look at them, see how you're perceived. I don't know how I'm perceived. Maybe, um... Oh, I suppose what I mean is, like, you're, like you're dealing with different people all the time. And it's not just, like working in a shop where you have people coming in, different people coming out, you're like, you're dealing with people's passion and their art and, you know, you have to be, I'd imagine, very um, empathetic and diplomatic in that situation and has that affected you over over time, do you think? I think, yeah, it's probably made me a, a better listener, perhaps, you know what I mean? To, yeah. But, you know, when you're, most people in the younger, they, they like to talk and feel like what they're saying is important when it's just, usually it's just, bollocks coming out of their mouths <laughs> uneducated on you know la- lacking experience it's their viewpoint but like when with a bit more experience i think you're in, and you're not in, in my position not being the center of the little musical universe that's happening in the studio yeah i think you have to be much more ears open to the person and the artist or the band so that's probably come you know and actually being in germany was huge for me on that level because you know I was a quite chatty and quite yappy teenager you know um, but because I went to Germany I couldn't speak the language I ended up listening a lot for once mm. you know hanging out not being able to converse you know at 12 1, 2 in the morning and I ended up thinking coming back on Jesus that really changed me so that was a big one I think um, 
and the helping that helps in the studio. Um, um, I don't know if I've changed other than that. You know, I think it's yeah, providing a service to people is something that you know you normally plan when yeah. you when you go in and pick up a drumstick and want to bash it loud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, so on that note, I suppose would it be fair to ask you has your connection to music changed since you made it your job yeah yeah i guess so i mean yeah i think when you know when you start listening to music as you know when you get to play an instrument you kind of dissect things a little bit you want to learn the guitar part or the drum part you end up ripping it out and then you become conscious of of the elements in a mix and you don't hear it as one thing hitting you anymore and affecting you emotionally so yeah and doing it in day in day out you probably it's harder to get that you know when you hear a song you just hear it and it affects you emotionally i don't think that happens as much which is terrible you know and yeah. I, I think a lot of musicians probably have the same thing but i think engineers and producers probably suffer from that a little more and just having the the one-on-one -on -one, wow this is just blowing me away kind of feeling you know shutting the tear at a part part of your brain shutting that down is kind of hard to do I, um, I listened to this um, reference yesterday in the studio and, um, and I was trying to show someone Van Morrison you know they hadn't heard any of his stuff really so I was like a lot of people now don't even go that far back yeah. they're like what happened in the 70s you know and I'm like oh my god <laughs> Jesus and I'm just so excited and I put up you know Astral Weeks thinking this is going to blow their fucking minds you don't know who, you don't know this album I put it on and they were like, oh my, they were laughing, you know, just, just because they are not used to hearing music like that, you know, out of time, out that, of tune. That first tune in that album is absolutely stunning. It blows yeah. me away. It's, every you time got, I hear it. I just got shivers now yeah. thinking about it, you know. Do you know, like, there's a point where the, it's staccato on the strings mm, yeah. and it's all on the right yeah. side and then it goes up an octave or whatever and that comes down on the left side. Yeah. And his voice, he's like a sheep or something. Sometimes. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable what he's doing. And I, I just wanted to show how things can be rough, you know, and, and the bass was so out of tune. But I never heard that. You know? And what's the guitar player doing on the acoustic? You, it's like you're not hearing this guy just riffing away in an acoustic. Yeah. But it's perfect. Battering away, like just yeah. hammering. And then there's like licks, just random licks coming from the left and right. But I, I like, even after listening, like that album, which was so... That's like an island, you know. It's, that is an island, that mm. record, you know, for everyone. And I listened to it for the first time in a long time, working in the studio every day and being kind of, like, analytical and having to do things in layers, maybe. I listened to it, and I couldn't help but feel like, wow, the bass is so out of fucking tune. And he, you know, this dude was laughing, going, what the fuck is this? You know, and I'm like, oh, my God. They must be really... They didn't know whether I was joking. Oh, really? <laughs> because it was so out. I think so, yeah. And I was like, listen, just put this on. You know, leave, put it in the kitchen, go out to your garden, leave it, leave it flow out and don't sit in front of the speakers. Just let it be a part of your, your yeah. musical day. And it's, the, it's like the air that's coming out of it all as one because, you know, I think we're so used to hearing stuff tight. Yeah, to be fair, I was recommended an album when I was, I moved to London. Mm. I was 20. It was uh, Kieran McFeely who was oh, yeah. uh, Simple Killer. He gave that to me. I thought it was garbage. I thought yeah. the whole record was garbage the first time I heard Isn't it. Isn't that crazy? You know? And because uh, it was only like a year before that, I was playing in a, a hardcore yeah. punk band in Cork. Like, <laughs> yeah. so I thought this is muck, is but it? I can't, I can't get enough of that first tune now. There's yeah. certain tunes that you listen to that will always affect you, you know, and yeah. that's one of them for me. 
it's it's so so deep and I mean I think they made that record in 32 hours and I don't interpret what just session heads just just went in and did it like let's take one more tune and then I'm going to get get a bit nerdy yeah totally what have, got, what have we got just the sound of this this record is huge I mean I think what they did they had a band and they, the next two records had a different lineup the next three had a different lineup and then the three after that had a different lineup but this one is quite unique because it's their most famous record um, and none of the other ones sound like it there's two brothers in the band um, and I think there's two other members but it's just the way the drums sound it's not rock it's not jazz it's so unique I don't think anything happened like that and it's just um, just something special really The straight man to the late man Where have you been? I've been here and I've been there and I've been in between I talk to the way
was I Talked to the Wind by King Crimson and that was picked by my guest today, Christian Best. Christian, we've come to the end. I have one more question. Uh, let's get a bit nerdy, can we? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so for me, the greatest sounding record, no, not the best song by any means, mm. but sonically, the best sounding record of all time for me is Come Together by the Beatles oh. on Abbey Road. Yeah. From a purely sonic standpoint, mm. every instrument sounds incredibly perfect on it. So I've had uh, two parts of this question. Firstly, do you agree? Yeah, big time. That was another one I thought was my dad's songs as well. Yeah. <laughs> I remember playing that one and thinking, God, my dad writes really cool songs. But then when I heard the real, the real version, I was like, wow, this is crazy good. So good. Um, I think there's a synthesizer on that. There is. Moog had a, a room full of synthesizers that they wanted bands to try out. Was that it? And Macca went up. Of course, Macca went yeah. up. And uh, he, I, he got I, it in. I only heard about it recently. Oh, it's probably on... I don't know, Instagram or Twitter, just like a passing thing. And I was like, I never knew that that, one, that was on there, like a synth on that song. It sounds so bandy, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Secondly, do you think that that sound was down to the engineer, Jeff Emmerich? And does George Martin get too much credit for engineering on those Beatle records, do you think? I would say so. I, as in terms of, yeah, he, I mean, he, he was, I don't think he was engineering per se, but yeah, the rec however they made those records, um, the gear used has a lot to do with it, I think. The, the specific type of gear from 
you know, the miking techniques to the desks that were used, the tape machines that they ended up on, all imparted a huge um, sound on the way they turned out, I think. And, you know, playing live was probably a huge problem. But what they did to overcome that ended up resulting in, like, just a means to an end to get it clear or isolated ended up being the reason why it sounds like that. Yeah. And I think at the time, I don't know if they were aiming for that. They were aiming for something that was more utility-based opposed to painting the colours as we might have an opportunity to do now with, like, you know, isolation boots and stuff. So I think it's like a, a mixture of, you know, oh, I just need turn down the overheads because there's so much of the guitars in there. Yeah. And then there's no overheads in there, but you get this really dry up front drum sound, which is incredible. But I don't know if they would have done that if they had been playing in different boots. Do you know what I mean? So I think a lot of it is just a weird journey that came to be. And the compressors, you know, the Fairchilds, and the tube tape machine, maybe on that one. It probably wasn't the J37. It was probably a four-track um, Studer that they had, I think, and the TG console. So they were all huge sonic imprints, like, you know, on it as well. What is it about that one you like the most? Is the bass, the drum sound? It's all of them. Yeah. All of, just everything sounds perfect. Yeah. The, the drums, the bass sounds amazing on it. Harrison's guitar parts. It's so good. Yeah. Genius, like. Unreal. That someone like them, that's just another, another dude, just another bunch of guys, can have such a an odd angle at approaching a song. And I, I read uh, Jeff Emmerich, he was the engineer for the Beatles mm. from Revolver on. Right. I read his book here, there and everywhere. And, yeah, you know, I think I was just, I, I just wondered what you thought. Maybe is that sound down to him? I would say like the approach, yeah. I mean, he was kind of flying by the seat of his pants when he got in there. I don't know what his first session was, something huge. Yeah. I was on the end of, maybe, he was he on the end of Sgt. Pepper's maybe? He was, the, yeah, he came in on, on Revolver. Revolver. So that was before, just before yeah. Sgt. Peppers. And Mac had to convince people because they were using somebody before that, but he convinced them that he'd be good enough yeah, and he, he stayed with them then. 19 yeah. or something. Yeah. I, yeah, clearly, I mean, I, they were pretty bold anyway about what they wanted to do, you know. Um, yeah. But I would say Emmerich was just kind of vibing off what was being soundboarded back from the band going yeah more like this more like that so I'd say it was just a, a kind of a yeah. doing it as you go and if it's working and if the band are excited just going more further into that direction I mean they did so many crazy things was it in that book that it explained they splicing together strawberry fields did you read that one I think so yeah where it was the original take yeah. and a slow one and a different key that's right that's it, the book yeah. it landed at the take 13 for the body of the song which was up one tone and faster and I think it might have gone back somewhere else at the end but they made the engineers to create very speed Lenin's like oh no just make it happen like make it happen and they're like well you can't join these two pieces because they're in different keys and one's slower and one's faster so the engineers like they did back in the day just scratch their heads and they created something that could control the voltage on the machi machines. Okay. So it would run, you know, you had 
seven inches per second, so seven inches of tape passes the heads every second, and then that's that speed. And then it goes 15 inches per second, so it goes faster, and then 30 inches. They use those speeds. That was the three select things. So when they changed the voltage on the, I think it was the, on the tape machine, they could go incrementally, like varying the speed. So it didn't have to be one of those three. So they had this crazy idea that they splice the first section and they slowly over time pitch it up, making it faster. Making it faster is pitching it up. And they met the other one. So they sped it up, pitched it up, joined it at the right tempo and key. Like... <laughs> That's like some seriously nerdy shit yeah. that you just demand, you know, Lennon demands of some guys in white coats to do and they come back after a weekend scratching their heads, you know. And they, they, yeah. they, they made this machine, they modded the machine to accommodate what became cultural, a beacon of cultural music, like, you know, Strawberry Fields Forever, you know. Um, yeah, like, uh, there's a good story. Credit to the engineers and the yeah. white coats, like, you know. There's a lyric in that song. I was in Liverpool mm. recently and uh, I did it. I did a nerdy Beatles tour. Oh, nice. But he brought me to this school and uh, the tour guide, and he was like, see that tree there right above the school or whatever. Apparently Lennon used to go, used to sneak in there when he was mitching from his school and he'd go up that tree. And even at night or during the evening and his aunt, like the school would get onto his aunt Mimi or whatever and yeah. say, listen, he, you can't, he can't be doing this anymore. And uh, she was saying like, if you don't come, if you just don't stop doing that, they're going to hang you from that tree. That's the lyrics in Strawberry Fields oh, where there's no, um, no one I think is in my tree. I mean, it must be high or low and nothing to get hung about. Oh my God. Yeah. Love that story. That's so cool that they did that all that he did, especially, didn't he? Yeah. Random things like, I can't remember, there's another one about a poster in his bedroom, the Eggman <laughs> or some, there's some weird pink posters or teddies or some stuff and he'd throw them in there and, and then to think you have the likes of Charles Manson thinking they're about him. I know. <laughs> did you did you re actually I don't know if this is off off topic but did you um ever hear the podcast about Charles Manson and the whole crew? It goes into a big Beatles section on that. Oh really? That yeah, he yeah. explains how he thought the White Album was the Beatles speaking to him. Oh, this is familiar actually, yeah. yeah. And uh, each song he had he thought it was the messages to him and he'd go out and tell his that's where the little piggies come from. Wrote pig, little piggies on the wall, like that. It was to, all off the Beatles' ah. White Album because they were so insane and on acid. Yeah. Okay, we're going to have to get you back in to do a Beatles <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> okay, listen, uh, thanks a million for coming in. Uh, my pleasure, Dave. Thanks um, for having me. If people want to get in touch, I want to, you know, with the studio, how can they find you? Um, Instagram, uh, Facebook. Money Studios. I'm pretty useless at all of that stuff you yeah. know I don't even have a website I have it but it's down I just people contact me on Facebook on social media yeah, alright okay media. thanks so much for coming in no I worries, appreciate man. it man my pleasure dude uh, do you want to finish up with a tune yeah I suppose I left out Zep because it's probably too long so let's put on I left out Rodrigo's let's put on John Martin that's a nice soft one nice one Dave I can tell you that it's all
Tune in to Keeping Track every Monday at 1pm on UCC 98.3 FM. Keeping Track is hosted by me, Dave Hackett. I interview people in our community from all different backgrounds and my guests also choose the music that they love. 
When I'm not hosting an interview, I'll be playing a random selection of alternative music, old and new. Stay up to date with the show on Instagram, where I announce upcoming guests and radio documentaries. You can listen back to previous shows on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Keeping track every Monday at 1 here on UCC 98.3 FM. <laughs>